So last week, we, uh, we were reminded that our rule is the Bible, not legalism, which rapidly becomes hypocritical, becomes a matter of a pride that leads to a desire to be noticed, a desire for fame. Because if you're a legalist and you want to show forth that you're doing things in your view of being right, you need people to see you to be able to prove that I am doing everything correctly. So it becomes a matter of fame. Look at me rather than look to God. Our Lord made these points by making a whole set of woe-to-you statements. Because you see, if we're not leading an outward sinful life, that doesn't necessarily prove that we are Christian. And the Pharisees walked in the basis of because they didn't, you couldn't immediately see outwardly that they were doing something obviously wrong. Therefore, that meant that they were believers and truly trusting in God. But that's not the way it works. So we come to church, get baptized, join the church. That in itself doesn't make us a Christian. These things are good and encourage them to us. But it has to start from the inside because it's the inside that needs to change first. Because it's what we have in the inside that leads to what we have in the outside. So if we have a legalist in the inside, we will show that in our outward behavior of being legalist. If we are liberal in the inside, then that will show forth that being liberal in the way we behave on the outside. If, on the other hand, we are born again and trusting in Christ and our life has been changed, that change will show forth on the outside. <clears throat> In short, we all need to be born again. We all need to repent of our sins and trust in Christ. This isn't a matter of having a special moment we can write down. I mean, I can tell you that I was converted at 9 o'clock in the evening on the second Sunday in January 1990. But that's not what is important. The important thing is whether I repent and believe the gospel. Because we can be so caught up in pinning it down to a time, we can miss the whole point of what the Bible teaches. We're never told in Scripture we have to have a moment. What we're told in Scripture, repent and believe. Be born again. Some of us know, like me, the precise moment. Others don't. Others have been brought up in a Christian household. And others who haven't been brought up in a Christian household, often it's been a, a slow and gradual process. And at some point in there, they are born again, and they've come to understand because they've truly repented and believed. Now, God knows the precise moment. And obviously, coming from my own personal experience, it's nice if you do know the precise moment. But it's not about a moment, because there are many people who have that moment who walk away from God. How many thousands have come forward at Billy Graham meetings? And I'm not talking about whether you do or don't like Billy Graham. 
Many thousands have been truly converted at his meetings at these crisis moments, but many thousands have thought that having that crisis moment, that's them a Christian, but they haven't actually repented of their sins or believed the gospel. They've had a moment. But we need to be born again. That's a deeper change that affects our entire lives at our very core. It cleanses the inside of the cup, as we'll see when we come to part of this passage. That's the key. Don't get me wrong. I have nothing against if somebody is converted through a crisis moment. Wonderful. If somebody is converted through, I I used a prayer that was printed on the thing that helped to save me because I was an atheist and I'd never prayed in my life I as it were said that sinner's prayer nothing wrong with that I'm not saying these things are wrong what I'm saying is is that it is the deeper point of whether you repent and believe the gospel that's the key that's the questions and your life will show it However you've come to Christ, and the longer I go on as a Christian, I have found people coming to Christ in such a a myriad of different ways. Some I have met who have been converted through complete heretics. One I met who was in Scotland, brought up with the gospel. He went to Australia on holiday, was walking in the, well, in Australia, the outback really is the back of beyond, I mean, the outback's bigger, I think, than the UK, so this really was the back of beyond. Walking towards them were two South Koreans who were believers, told them the gospel, which he had heard all his life, actually. And that was the moment he became a Christian. All sorts of different ways. Some come gradually. Some Christians I know, solid, sound Christians, they can't tell you at the point when they believed. They were brought up in a Christian home, To them, they've always believed. And it's not that they think they're a Christian because they were brought up in a Christian home. They're a Christian because they repent and trust in Christ and Him only as their Savior. They don't trust in their upbringing. They trust only upon Christ. But they can't tell you a precise time. And the danger is people often say to them, Oh, you have to go off and have a moment. It is better not to wander from God than it is to wander from God and come back. All of this is leading the introduction to the point in dealing with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes and their outward show. And they forgot that you must be born again. And when I say forgot, even though they might not have used these words, because the Old Testament wording would have been, you need to be circumcised in the heart. That's what the law says, circumcised in the heart. It starts from cleaning the inside, and from the outside you then have the outward working. Our text is Matthew chapter 23, 23 to 39. The theme, you must be born again. The three points are clean the inside, don't reject God's word, and it's dangerous to reject God's word. So let's start with the cleaning of the inside, which is point one and verses 23 to 28. 
8. Now, essentially, there are two types of religion. And religion isn't immediately a dirty word. Paul uses the word religion in his epistles, talking about, you know, if we're not believing, our religion is vain. So religion is a perfectly reasonable word to use, even though it's often misused. There are two types of religion. One, where you have to earn salvation by our own works, and two, where you are granted salvation by grace and our works are showing forth what God has done in our lives. The problem is, it's possible to make, make a to seek to make a show of all the right things outwardly while not actually truly believing. <clears throat> and one of the elements of this is seen in the strenuous legalistic way of dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and all the little details become a smokescreen for faith. So you ask somebody who is very heavily into a legalistic way of living about their faith, and what they'll rapidly go on to is how they dress on a Sunday or how they do this and how they don't do that. What they won't talk about is the fact that they're born again and that they're repentant sinners, or that will be mentioned and moved on from quickly. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. <clears throat> scribes and <coughs> Pharisees took tithing very seriously. Tithe, of course, is you're giving 10%, and they counted it down to the smallest seeds to make sure they had exactly that 10%. Now, the law says they ought to do that. In other words, they ought to be careful about what they give to God. We ought to think carefully about it. We don't have the, the law telling us now that we must give 10%, but whatever we do or don't give, we do take it seriously. We are wanting to give to the Lord, however much. But there are weightier matters than that. There are weightier, weightier matters than the fine detail of working out our accounts. Law, justice, mercy, and faith, they come first. It's not that we ignore the other things, but they come first. <clears throat> and one of the problems with legalism is that everything is put on the same level. So, for example, I certainly know of churches where, if looking around, I'm afraid every one of us here would probably be under discipline by the church, certainly all the men, because none of the men in the pew are wearing a suit. And I would be disciplined because I'm not wearing a dog collar. And I'm not joking. People do get disciplined for that. If you can find that in the Bible, then you're doing better than I, because I can't find any of that. But you see how they discipline people for something that isn't even in the Bible anyway, but they discipline something for the, and there's no change in weight. So they would rightly discipline somebody for adultery, but they're disciplining almost in the same way as if you're not wearing the right clothes. And you think, well, where, where's the difference in the weight of, of how you see things? And of course, when, I mean, I gave an, a pretty silly and obvious example, albeit a true one. But this is the danger. Whatever the legalism is, it ends up putting everything on the same level so that 
there was no gradation of understanding. <clears throat> and our Lord here says, these are weightier matters. It's our Lord who says it, not me. Lord, justice, mercy, and faith are more weighty than whether you are absolutely precise in your 10%. That's what he's telling the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's not saying you ignore the other thing and don't worry about whether you do or don't give any money to God or anything like that. It's not saying that, but it's saying get things in perspective. But there's legalism. <clears throat> Blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. I mean, it's, it's quite a graphic description. I mean, we go to the safari park now and then and you drive past the camels and it's hard to imagine shoving one in one's mouth and trying to swallow it. I mean, it's a proverbial saying. He's saying something, obviously, that's exaggerated to make the point. Straining every muscle to avoid the small little things while ignoring the larger matters as if they don't matter. It's a bit like saying, I managed to grab the grenade and stop the grenade going off. I mean, there's a 20 megaton bomb about to drop off in high time that will wipe us all out. But I've stopped the grenade. You think, well, <laughs> you know, shouldn't we get in our cars and get going because there's a bomb about to drop that's a big, bigger than a grenade? No, 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 because the smaller thing becomes the most important thing. And that's the thing. You see, it's not just that the gradation is everything is the same. You see, it actually gradually tips. And then the most important thing becomes the legalistic view where you end up thinking this little thing has to be more important. This is, everything is honed in on these outward things. And what does our Lord say to such things? Blind guides. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, and inside are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and so on. So it's the inside that you deal with first. That's the key. It's not that we Christians should be careless in the life. It's not that we just go and just do whatever we want. You become a Christian and off you go and go wild. No, no. But you start from the inside, and the outside will show forth what's in the inside. So if the inside is filled with hypocrisy, then sooner or later the hypocrisy will be seen. If it's filled in the inside with legalism, then that's what you'll get. If it's filled with being born again, repented sinner, being humble before God, trusting in Christ as our Savior, then that will show forth. We won't be perfect, not by any stretch of the imagination, but it will be seen. Think of verse 27, the tombs nice and whitewashed, made to look lovely, but inside it's filled with dead men's bones. In other words, the Pharisees are making the outside look so religious, but inside it's filled with dead men's bones. Only one way to change, you must be born again. For it is only then that the inside is cleansed by God. It's only then there's any hope for us to truly change, all by grace. <clears throat> Clean the inside by God's grace, 
and don't reject the Word of God. Don't reject these warnings. Point two, don't reject God's Word. Verses 29 to 33. Our Lord isn't, as we say, tippy-toeing around the tulips in these verses. Not that the rest of this chapter is exactly tippy-toeing around the tulips. But this one, he really doesn't hold back. There is a right place to keep God's Word, of course, and we should uh, and by that I mean, we, God, we're told to do certain things in the Bible. We are right to look at these things and say, yes, we ought to do them. We're told not to do certain things. We're right to look at God's words and say, no, we, we, we won't do them. This, that doesn't earn us salvation, but we should be behaving like that as an outworking of a changed life by God, a, God, a, a life that's trusting in Christ. It says in Psalm 119, verse 80, let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes that I may not be ashamed. So believer, walk a straight line in that narrow path following God so that you will not be ashamed, so that we cannot be called out. The world cannot look upon us and say, hey, you say you're a Christian, but what about this? What about that? I mean, don't get me wrong, the world may well call us out anyway, whether we walk in a straight line or not. But if they're going to call us out, let it be because we stand for Christ, not because we've wandered from Him. So we come to the tombs that were mentioned from verse 27. And in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn monuments to the righteous and Say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them and the blood of the prophets. Therefore, your witnesses against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. So they're talking about we would not have been partakers with them. So physically, they are descended from those who killed the prophets. But the reason why they've been warned is because they weren't just physically descended that way. They were descended that way spiritually as well. Because they were rejecting not only the prophets of old, but they were rejecting Jesus Christ. All these prophets that they then said that they believed were pointing to Christ. Every one of these prophets were pointing to being circumcised in the heart and following God and not being legalist, but actually following from their heart. Every one of them would have said, Jesus Christ, that's the Messiah, as John the Baptist did. And they rejected the Old Testament prophets, and that is seen by their works of rejecting Christ. If they had accepted Christ, then that would have been proof they accepted the Old Testament prophets. So they were walking not only in the footsteps of their physical fathers, but also in the footsteps of their spiritual fathers and our Lord condemns them for it. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Well, they will fill up the measure of their sins and their father's guilt because they're the ones that are going to be crying out, crucify him before Pilate. That's how they're going to fill up the measure. Their father's had been murdering the prophets, and now they were going to murder the king of prophets, the prophet. 
And what does the Lord say to them? Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? I mean, as I said, it's not tippy-toeing around the tulips. This is not mild language. Vipers, serpents, they're full of poison and subtlety. And that's what happens when those who claim to teach God's word but actually reject it. They are poisonous and use subtlety to slither their way around what God's word is saying so as to avoid what God's word is saying. And this language takes us right back to the Garden of Eden. The serpent deceived Eve by twisting what God had said. That's what the Lord is saying of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And that's why I don't mince or tippy-toe around the tulips when it comes to speaking about those who are heretics today. The Archbishop of Canterbury is in York the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers, the liberals of today, and so on. And I don't mess around either when I deal with the legalists of today because our Lord makes it very plain. These people who want to slither around God's Word use it to twist it, to ultimately send people to hell because they are rejecting the gospel and they are encouraging others to reject the gospel. Our Lord says they are serpents, brood of vipers. That's what he calls them. How does he deal with the woman at the well of Samaria? He tells her she needs to drink from the living waters. He does gently rebuke her in his question of bring your husband. How does he deal with the woman caught in adultery? I won't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't condone sin. But how does he deal with the religious leaders who are preaching lies? Serpents, brood of vipers. You see the difference? People like me who stand in the pulpit as we're warned in James, beware, if you preach ever, you will receive the greater condemnation. We've got to get it right. And if we don't, we need to sit in the pew and listen. And how can they escape the condemnation of hell? Not by their means, not by their legalism, not by persisting in the rejection of God's word, but by trusting in Christ, by being born again. Remember, many of these Pharisees, we know, became Christians after our Lord had risen from the dead. And we have the most famous example, of course, in Paul, the apostle, who no doubt would have been in amongst these Pharisees, whether he was physically with them there at this point. But in heart and mind, he would have been in amongst them with what they believed, that whole legalistic system that they had built up. But he became a Christian. So when our Lord asked the question, how can you escape the condemnation in hell? The answer is by being born again. 
Don't reject God's word, for you must be born again. If you try to use God's word to avoid repentance and faith by grace alone, then you will not be saved and not escape everlasting hell. Be under no illusions. It is a dangerous thing to reject God. Which leads us to our third and final point. Dangerous to reject God. Verses 34 to 39. There is no safe way to reject him. He is our creator. He is everywhere. He is all-powerful. Whatever any person or government thinks, God sets the standard. God's law is the bar. Not whatever we claim. And if we do not follow him, we do not trust in Christ, then we will have no hope and we will go to hell forever. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, verse 34. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. God sent all these prophets. Many of them were rejected and many killed. But more than that, Verse 35, God knows all the righteous blood. And by righteous blood here, he's giving examples of those who are trusting in him. He's not talking about innocence in the sense of general injustice. Now, God does see general injustice, and God is not pleased if somebody, if somebody isn't a believer and they're tried and convicted of a crime they, doesn't, doesn't, they didn't commit. God is not pleased with that. That does anger God. It is not right. But here it's not speaking about that. It's speaking about the blood of, verse 35, of righteous Abel, the first one to be murdered, to the blood of Zechariah, when he murdered between the temple and the altar. These were killed because of their faith. Why was Abel killed because he brought a right sacrifice and Cain didn't like the fact that his sacrifice, which was not acceptable, was rejected and Abel's was accepted. And this generation then were in the same spirit as all these past murderers. Remember that they kept plotting and planning, how can we kill this Jesus? Remember Nicodemus and John at one point saying, but you can't condemn a man until, you know, you know what he's doing. And he was just basically made to shut up. He later came out and showed that he had true faith in the end. And that generation would get the culmination of punishment because they rejected the culmination of all the prophets, Jesus Christ. The privileges of Jerusalem had were massive. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who killed the prophets, etc. The, the privileges they had were massive. There's so many prophets, there's so much privilege. They had many godly kings, more so than the northern kingdom, because after they split, the northern kingdom didn't have a single godly king. They had many prophets, but the southern kingdom even had many godly kings who stood, who stood wisely before God. But they martyred them. 
As one put it, the desire of the Lord to bring in and protect Jerusalem is Christ speaking as a man, as a minister of the circumcision, expressing the human affection for the inhabitants of Jerusalem and a human wish and will for the temporal good. Let's keep in mind that he's both God and man. And as man, we see in his godliness, his desire to draw in Jerusalem. He puts it in terms that we understand that there's a heartache there in seeing what they have done. But through their continued disobedience and rejection of the prophets and ultimately rejection of their own Messiah, they will be brought down and were brought down to desolation. <coughs> Verse 39. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These heavy judgments that come upon them. Verse 38, your house is left to you desolate. In AD 70, you'll find the final act in that regard. They'll, they'll see then that what Christ predicted was true. You have a true prophet. He made the prophecy and it happened. Jerusalem was sacked. The Jews were well and truly scattered. And what would it be in 1948 when they finally begin to get the land back? All these years, because our Lord warned them. And he says, but blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they'll need. Who is he? He is Jesus Christ. They will have no salvation except the trust in Christ. It is the same Savior for both Jew and Gentile. The Jew is no closer to God than a Gentile unless they turn to Christ and become Christians. The Jews should know better because they have the law and the prophets, but they don't, sadly. And so we pray for their salvation as we do for anybody else. But do you see the danger of rejecting God? I mean, you may or may not face calamity on, your, on this life. But if you don't trust Christ as your Savior, you will face calamity in the next life. Eternal hell. You must be born again. You must repent of your sins. Trust in Christ for salvation to be saved. If not, then you'll be cursed by God in hell. God's not absent from hell. God is there. Scripture's clear on that. But all people will know in hell is his wrath, which is why we must trust in Jesus Christ and know his mercy, and then we will not be in hell. And if you do trust in Christ as your Savior, then remember you truly are and can be called blessed as he who comes in the name of the Lord. In conclusion then, I made reference to hypocrites of religion in modern day. Our Lord is dealing with hypocrites in religion in His day. The fact that there were hypocrites in position of leadership in the churches throughout the world does not mean that we're not to profess Christ, nor is it an acceptable excuse for rejecting Christ. 
God tends to get the blame for <clears throat> everything done in his name. Indeed, he's often blamed for what he himself condemns in his word. And people then use what God condemns and say, oh, well, I won't trust in God because this or that has happened. But if they look to God's words, you'll find that God is opposed to injustice of any sort. And because bad things have been done by many an ordained or not ordained man or person, in the name of Christ, that doesn't actually give anybody the right to reject God. I'm not minimizing the hurt that's often been done in the name of Christ. I'm not minimizing the hurt that's often been done in the name of churches and even sometimes done by those who are true believers who've fallen even though they've come back, but many have caused great hurt. But you see, in the same way, when we go into our wallet of our purse and we take out coins and notes, if we do, because obviously that's becoming more of a rarity nowadays. But when we do actually handle money, well, there are counterfeit coins, there are counterfeit notes around. But because there are counterfeit notes and because there are counterfeit coins, does that mean we take all of our money and chuck it all in the bin? Because there are counterfeit Christians and counterfeit Christian leaders does not mean that we can chuck God in the bin, so to speak. So firstly, you must be born again. Failure to be born again is to miss the whole point of what the Bible is teaching us, is that we have to start from the inside, and the inside can only be changed by God's grace when we trust in Him. It's not about a crisis moment or saying a sinner's prayer. I'm not opposed to that. If that's what happens in your life, and if that's what draws you to Christ, praise the Lord. My question will always be the same to anybody, whether they've had a Christmas moment or not. Are you a repentant sinner? Do you see that you're a sinner? Do you see that you need Christ as your Savior? Are you trusting in His death on the cross and His resurrection and so on? Are you trusting only and solely upon Christ for your salvation? If the answer to that is yes, then you're saved. That's what's important. However the Lord brings you. If you know the Lord is your Savior, then keep in mind, we don't earn our salvation or earn to keep our salvation. It's all by grace through faith. Our outward work shows the inward reality. It's not a polished up show to make us look good. You go to a restaurant, you sit down, and you look around, and it's nice and clean. So you stay. You hope that if you went into the kitchen, it's as clean or even cleaner than the restaurant you're sitting in. You hope and pray that, it's the, that the cleanness in the restaurant is the outward show of the cleanness in the kitchen. That's what we need. Cleanness in the kitchen so that what is out is coming from within. Let's pray.